You can turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 3. We'll look at verses 1 through 7 again this morning. The text is also printed in the bulletin for you. Genesis 3, 1 through 7. We're um, coming closer to the end of a series on Genesis 1 through 3, where we're looking at sort of the, the fundamental... Uh, themes and trajectories of the scriptures, things that we see um, play themselves out as the scriptures unfold, as God's revelation takes us from uh, A to Z in our uh, journey of salvation and, uh, and toward eternity. And, um, and one of the most uh, prevailing concepts is, uh, is the, the concept of sin. That's what we're going to talk about this morning, sin. Um, it's not everybody's favorite word, maybe. You're probably going to say it so many times you'll be deadened to it um, this morning. But um, the reason why we're talking about it and the reason why it shows up right here at the beginning of the scriptures, um, Adam and Eve's fall into sin, their, their first sin, their rebellion against God uh, that, that started humanity off down that path uh, is because that's what's really wrong with us. Like we said earlier in the service, Confession of sin, that, that time um, uh, that we come to every week, uh, we, we acknowledge that there's something wrong with us. There's something broken about us. There's something broken in the world. And the Bible says right off the beginning what that is. It's sin. Sin is the major thing that's wrong with us. It's a true diagnosis of what's really wrong with the world, and that's what we need. We need, we need actually the true diagnosis of what's wrong with the world, um, and God needs to tell us what that is. Um, some of us know what it means... Uh, for illustrative purposes, to, uh, to be pretty desperate for a medical diagnosis of something that's wrong with us physically, right? Something's wrong physically, um, it's frightening, it's terrible, you don't know what, uh, what's going to happen, you're, you're hoping desperately that when you go to the doctor, they'll be able to tell you what's wrong with you, right? Not just to fix you, but to even tell you what's wrong with you, because the worst uh, maladies that we experience... Um, you don't just get better unless you know what's wrong with you, and that gets the treatment that's, that's appropriate to it, right? Uh, you need proper treatment for physical maladies, uh, especially when they're more desperate. Like, you know, if you get a cold, you figure you probably don't need to go to the doctor. I probably just have a cold. I'll get over this. Um, you get a bruise on your knee or something like that. Uh, but the worse things get, right, um, the worse they are, the more you know you need a diagnosis. You need an accurate diagnosis in order to start uh, the right treatment regimen. Uh, you don't get better from severe maladies unless you get proper treatment. Right? And that, that's, uh, that's the way it is with the whole world. And that's, sin is our true malady. Sin is what's really wrong with us, and it's, it's the worst of the maladies. And we're not going to just get better from it unless we get the right treatment. So we need God to tell us we need, we need his proper diagnosis. And that's what we're talking about mostly this morning, is the diagnosis that God himself gives us uh, what's wrong with us and what's wrong with the world <clears throat> in order that uh, the gospel treatment might be applied. So that's what we'll talk about this morning. Let's, uh, let's pray, and then I'll read the passage. <clears throat> Father, we pray that as we consider your word and we consider the application it has for each and every single one of us, that you, um, you would overcome our resistance to um, the diagnosis. We know... Uh, we know that you know us better than we know ourselves, and we know that what comes from you and your word must be true and right and good, and when it, it 
lays bare our souls and exposes us in such painful ways, we, um, we have a hard time accepting your diagnosis. But we pray that you would humble us, that you would make us uh, submissive and open to your word instead of rebellious against your word uh, so that we would be able to hear what's truly wrong with us and, um, and hear the gospel for us, the, the salvation of our souls, the salvation that's, uh, that's offered to the whole world. We pray that you would um, apply the, the true remedy this morning as we consider your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So last week we talked about the same passage, and we'll talk about some of it some more next week, or in two weeks. Um, but uh, last week we talked about temptation and how the devil is at work in our lives, and, uh, and what temptation really is, essentially, is kind of undermining that relationship of trust that exists between us and God. Um, the devil wants to destroy humanity, and he doesn't come after us. He doesn't start pummeling on Adam and Eve in the garden physically to, to wreck them. Uh, when he wants to destroy humanity, he goes after God's reputation in our sight. Right? When he wants to destroy humanity, he attacks God's reputation uh, and, and tries to undermine the relationship of trust that we have. And, and we're the kind of people now who succumb to temptation. That's kind of our default mode. We, we give in, we cave in uh, to temptation, and there's something wrong with us that, that can't just be fixed by just trying harder to overcome the temptations, being aware of temptations. And trying harder to, to stave them off or, or avoid them or triumph through them. Uh, we can't just fix ourselves uh, by doing that. We need uh, Jesus Christ to stand in our place and, and to, we, need, we need to live in his strength. And that's what we talked about last week. Next week, we're going to talk about the results of sin that we see here just like at the very end in verse 7 and a, the few more uh, verses following that. Um, talk about the results of sin uh, relationally between us and God and between us and each other. But this week, um, we're kind of focusing in on sin itself. Uh, sin itself. And that's um, something really hard for us to look at as we consider this passage. Um, we try to give some definition to sin, and, and probably this definition will expand beyond the, uh, just this passage. We'll incorporate some of the other places in Scripture that talk about what sin is. But uh, as we try to give some definition to it... We'll, we realize it actually resists definition. Uh, there's something about sin, there's something about what's wrong with us and what's wrong with the world that actually resists definition. You can't just figure out what this is exactly. And um, you can't nail it down because ultimately it doesn't make any sense. Ultimately it doesn't make any sense. And that's, uh, that's actually something that's somewhat clear from the text when it, <clears throat> you read it uh, carefully. But 
some of the aspects of sin that we can see, if you would consider sin like a, a, a jewel is not maybe the most appropriate analogy because it's not something beautiful, it's not something valuable, but uh, jewels oftentimes have, uh, they're multifaceted, right? There's different angles that you look at them and then it appears different from that angle. So it's something like that. Um, one of those angles, one of the primary angles is uh, sin is unbelief. Sin is unbelief. It, that's, uh, it's distrust of God. It's suspicion of God's character. It's suspicion of God's motives. And that's something that the, the devil, just right off the bat, starts attacking. He, he attacks our trust, our faith, in God, in God's character, in who he is, and, and um, an acknowledgment of what he's done for us, right? So he's seeking to undermine that relationship of trust, and he does so by attacking our faith in God. And, um, and unbelief is something that seems a little bit more active. It's, it's not so passive as we might think. It seems like... Um, a lot of times we, we think it must take a lot of faith to be an atheist because you've got to look around at the world and see what is clearly evidence of design and beauty and wonder in the whole world. And, um, and so, so we say there are a lot of presuppositions that atheists have. Those presuppositions don't align with reality very well. Uh, we can talk about this kind of thing later in sermon discussion if that bothers you. But, um, but a lot of times we say it takes a lot of faith to be an atheist. It takes a lot of faith... To, uh, to, to disbelieve God. And that's something that's true. Unbelief is not just a passive, well, I guess I don't really know um, what, uh, what God is like or who, who he is, uh, what his character is like or his motives. I guess I don't really know. Um, Adam and Eve knew. And uh, there's something of the suppression of that knowledge that has to take place for them to do what they did. Right? Uh, there's, there's an active unbelief. Right? They had to be worked into it in light of the overwhelming testimony, the constant perpetual testimony to God's good character in their lives, everything around them was, was given to them freely as a gift. And in spite of all of this, they worked themselves into this place of suspicion, of, uh, of distrust, right, of unbelief. Um, ingratitude it kind of leads uh, to the same thing. In, ingratitude, they're, they're ignoring the abundance of the other good things from God. Right? They've, they've been given freely to eat of everything in the world, everything in this garden that's, that's good and pleasant, and uh, they just can't have one fruit, but uh, they, they start to ignore God's generosity, his tremendous generosity. It's right there in front of them. It's surrounding them. They're ungrateful, right? So sin is, uh, is ingratitude. They're ignoring God. They're, they're deliberately somehow putting him out of their mind as they turn away from him to this uh, forbidden object, right, to become... Uh, obsessed with it. They're rebelling against God. Godward uh, disobedience is a real part of sin. You may not think that uh, for the most part of your day, if you're sinning, you're doing so in active rebellion against God. It might not be so active, but it is rebellion, right? Uh, um, it might be a subconscious rebellion. It might just be the lifestyle that you've chosen that leads to this kind of rebellion, so you don't even have to think about it anymore. But really, it is this relational concept where we're rebelling against God. Uh, we are disobeying God. It is impossible to sin. It's impossible to sin without rejecting God, right? without pushing him away in some way or another. Uh, we're breaking covenant. We're transgressing. He's given a command um, that, that, uh, that is not to be violated, but we violate it. We break covenant. We transgress. Um, 
John says in 1 John chapter 3, sin is lawlessness. Sin is when we do the things we are not supposed to do and when we don't do the things that we're supposed to do, right? Pretty simple. Most kids understand that. You ask them what sin is. Well, I've done something wrong, right? And that, that is ultimately uh, sin against God's law. He has given you a law, and you've said, I don't want to keep that law. I'm not going to do that thing, or I am going to do this thing over here. And that's, uh, that's transgression. That's, what, that's at the core of sin. Uh, idolatry. You see that they were, they, uh, Eve became obsessed with this fruit. She couldn't take her eyes off it. She just found so many reasons why this fruit was pleasant and good, and she should have it. And, um, and it became a matter of idolatry for her. This thing that was created, and it was created to be good. Uh, she wasn't supposed to enjoy it in the way that she did, but she could enjoy the look of it. She could enjoy the smell of it. She could pick it up and, and touch it. She just wasn't supposed to eat it, Right? She, was enjoy- she, she looked for the enjoyment of what God had made good, and she uh, distorted that by enjoying it in the wrong way, enjoying it too much. And when she did that, that object became an idol. And that's, uh, sin is idolatry. Sin is replacing God in our hearts, in our minds, in our uh, loyalties, in our affections, in our allegiance. Sin is replacing God with something else that God has made. Right? Elevating this thing that God has made, which is good, it's a good thing, for the most part, elevating that to a level of uh, divinity in, in life. This is, if I finally have this, then I'll be okay. Then I'll be satisfied. If I can get this, then I know I'll have security. If I can get this, I know I'll have ultimate pleasure or joy. Whatever it is, you're putting that thing in God's place. That's idolatry, and that's at the core of what sin is. <clears throat> Sorry, we're screaming right through these things, but there's a lot. There's a lot to sin. It's, it's very complicated. Uh, self-deception. Self-deception is a huge part of sin, a huge aspect of sin. Um, Adam and Eve were tempted by the devil uh, saying that if you eat that fruit, you're going to know good and evil. You're going to know good and evil. Well, God's plan for them was that they would grow in wisdom through obedience rather than through disobedience, that they would actually come to know good and evil, but not experientially as they practiced evil, not not through their disobedience, not through their law-breaking, not through their sin, but the devil tempted them with that, and so they came to know evil. Uh, they had an intimate knowledge of evil, but when they did so, uh, a huge part of them uh, became blind to themselves and became blind to evil, and this is something that is uh, pervasive. This is something that we are somehow enabling ourselves to sin against God most of our waking hours and not even be aware of it. Um, I bet you can't just off the top of your head rattle off ten ways that you sinned this morning before you got to church. I can guarantee you that you did. You cannot think of those ways, can you? Uh, Given some time, you probably can't think of those ways. Because something that is part of what's wrong with us is that we know we're wrong when we sin, and uh, we know that it wrecks everything in the world, and it wrecks our relationship with God, and wrecks our own righteousness, and our chances for glory, right? We know there's something wrong with us, so we can't stand to, to even know about ourselves that we are sinners. There's this level of self-deception. We, we fool ourselves into thinking, somehow this sin is going to benefit me, and, uh, and then we keep ourselves in the dark about the fact that we've done that. We keep ourselves in the dark 
We're not aware. We have no self-awareness. We are self-deceived. We know good and evil, but we don't know ourselves anymore. And we really don't know those times where we've committed evil, where we've committed sin. We're not self-aware. And that, that actually is a, is a, a huge problem uh, that's addressed throughout the Gospels when Jesus is talking with those who make themselves his greatest enemies, the, the Pharisees, the people who are self-righteous, the people who are generally successful and well-looked at in life, right? People who have things together. And that's kind of like us sitting in this room. We have things together. We promote uh, a pretty good appearance of ourselves. Like we're pretty good people, and I've fooled you into thinking that. I've fooled myself into thinking that. Right? And Jesus comes into the world to dismantle our self-deception, to dismantle that aspect of sin, to actually reveal ourselves to ourselves so that we can know ourselves and, and at least begin to realize, wow, there's something wrong here. There's something really wrong when I look inside. I don't find the resources uh, that I thought I had when I look inside. Um, I can't restore what's broken. I can't fix my relationship with God when I look inside. Uh, he starts to peel back those layers for us and, and, um, and work against our self-deception. And that's something that he does in particular for people like us, people who are tempted toward uh, self-righteousness, especially religious self-righteousness, like the Pharisees. Um, we don't know ourselves. We have no... You have no self-awareness. You have very little self-awareness. I'm not saying that in a condemning way. I realize about myself all the time. How did that get there inside my heart? Stuff about me surprises me all the time, right? We have no self-awareness because of our sin, and that's a major factor of what sin is. We need God to come in and tell us what's wrong with us because otherwise we're, we're unwilling to acknowledge it about ourselves. We don't even know it's there. <clears throat> um, Self-love. This is another major component of our sin. Uh, we are unable to love other people truly because we are caught in the gravity of sin. We're caught in the gravity of self-love. Um, Latin term that's gone around for lots and lots and lots of seasons, which maybe Augustine coined it in like the 300s. Luther picked it up. It, we're curved inward on ourselves, right? Our affections our love, our allegiance, our loyalty, um, everything that we do, all of our devotion is curved inward on ourselves. We're a self-advancing type of people. We're self-protecting type of people. We're self-justifying type of people. We, we love ourselves, and, um, and so we're unable to love others truly, and we need someone to come from the outside and, and, um, and wrench our love away from ourselves and put it in God and put it in others where it's meant to be, right? We can't do that for ourselves. There's something wrong with us uh, <clears throat> that self-love is our natural tendency. Pride. Eve surely was thinking because of the, the devil's temptation, I deserve something that God is withholding from me. I deserve it. God is withholding it. Even though God is greater, uh, that doesn't matter. I and my pride will reach out and take what I deserve. And that, that permeates all of our sins. It permeates everything that we do. Every time we rebel against God's command, every time we uh, live for ourselves and uh, exalt ourselves to the position of God in our lives, every time we try to throw off the, the, um, the shackles that we imagine God has placed on us and take matters into our own hands, that's because of pride. Because we think we know what's best for our lives. Right? And we think we deserve what we know is best for our lives. Right? Uh, there's no humility in us. 
And uh, that's everywhere in the scriptures, but Proverbs 16 is a familiar verse probably. It says that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. That's what you have at work here in the garden and at work in all of our lives, uh, in the life of uh, every single human being throughout history except for one, is, is this kind of pride, this kind of sinful pride. Um, I deserve something that God is withholding. Um, and then, maybe ironically, another facet of our sin is uh, abdication of our rightful spot as those who are made in God's image, who are meant to have authority in the world. Even though we are proud, we abdicate our authority when we sin. Uh, Adam abdicated his authority. He gave it over to Eve, right? Adam was the one who was responsible for this relationship, responsible for Eve in their relationship with God. Uh, Adam was the one to whom God had made this, this covenant and this, uh, this threat about um, death coming upon you if you eat from the, the tree that you're not supposed to eat. And uh, Adam abdicated that authority and gave, gave the decision-making over to Eve. And then Eve abdicated her authority and let the serpent, who was just a creature, somebody underneath her command who was a subordinate, right? She, she submitted to the creature. She obeyed the creature. Right? And so um, part of our sin is, uh, and you can see that in idolatry, when we when we worship anything other than God, anything that God has made, you worship money, you worship sex, you worship the fruit in the garden, whatever it is that you're, you're fixing your heart's devotion on, that, that idolatry, when you're doing that, you're submitting yourself to something that's less, it's less than you. It's lower than you. You were created in God's image. There's no creature, there's no creation that's, that's higher than you, that has more authority than you in the, in the world, in a sense. And, and that... Um, <clears throat> That aspect of sin is that we, we abdicate our authority when we submit ourselves to these things, when we, when we worship idols, when we um, engage in sin. And we ultimately have abdicated ourselves to, to sin itself. We've abdicated our authority to sin itself. Jesus says that whoever practices sin is a slave to sin. Right? You were supposed to be free with regard to sin. But instead, sin uh, dominates you. It, you. You are a slave to sin if you make a practice of sin. Um, sin is um, sin is insanity. That's a huge component of what we see even here in this uh, this passage of the scripture. Sin is insanity. It doesn't make sense. We could try to define it. We could try to talk about these facets of it. Um, we could talk about a lot more of it, but ultimately, you can't explain it. it. It actually seems impossible. When you read the story, you read the beginning chapters of Genesis, you've got beings made by God himself, the perfect God, the God of love, who makes beings in his image made for love, and they become self-lovers. Uh, you've got beings living in communion with God, living constantly in communion with God, believing the lie about God. You've got beings thriving because of his favor, because of his generosity, rejecting him in suspicion. You've got beings who are made for all authority on the earth, who are abdicating their authority to a snake in the grass. This is an absolute distortion of reality that just doesn't make any sense. How did they get there? What happened? 
There's no explanation for it. Sin doesn't make any sense. Henry Blochet's uh, uh, commentator on this passage says, he asks, why did they yield? The enigma remains total and the evil rebellion inexcusable. What was it that took these perfect humans who enjoyed good fellowship with God and, and something in them made them make a bad decision? How could that be if they were perfect? <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. When you ask those kinds of questions, there's no explanation for why they sinned. Ultimately, there is no explanation because it doesn't make any sense. It is, it's insanity. It's unreality. It's a distortion of reality. Uh, C.S. Lewis uh, has the Space Trilogy that I, I quoted a few weeks ago also. The second book of the Space Trilogy, this uh, fiction that he writes, the second book is called Paralandra. <clears throat> and there's uh, something of a, uh, it's hard to explain what it is, like a poem toward the end uh, it's, it's pretty exalted prose writing. It's a celebration of the glory of God and uh, how God is in everything and, um, and how you can enjoy God in everything and see God in everything. And, and something that's, uh, that he says there is, where God is, there is the center. He is in every place, even in the smallness beyond thought. There is no way out of the center save into the bent will which casts itself into the nowhere. And that's what sin is like. God is everywhere. God is relating to us in everything. God has given us everything for our, uh, as a good gift for us. He's made us to be in relationship with him. Everything was made in, in Genesis 1 and 2. Everything was made right and whole and good. And if God is everywhere and God's at the center where everywhere is and how can, you get, how can you escape from God? How can you, you wrench yourself out of that? Um, it seems impossible. There's something bent and broken about it. You'd have to take yourself into nowhere to escape God. And how does that seem possible? How would you do that? Right? Um, and so uh, there is an aspect of insanity. There's an aspect of brokenness. It's not the way that it's supposed to be. We don't know how it got that way. Like, we can read the text. We can see some of the mechanisms of temptation there that are wrapped up in this original sin. Uh, we can't understand it, and it's, it's broken, and we can't get our minds around it. Uh, maybe if we could get our minds around it, we could try to fix it, right? Maybe if we could get our minds around it and, and perfectly understand what sin is, we could try to fix it, but we can't. It, it doesn't make any sense. It's broken. It's complicated. It involves internal components, our, our motives, the temptations, the affections, the internal allegiances of our hearts, and the outward actions, the, the explicit rebellion against God and his will. And so um, it's, it's insane, it's broken, it's complicated. And Henry Blochet again says, that it's like an octopus with its spreading tentacles or like a cancer with its manifold metastases. It spreads into everything. And we, can't, we can't get it nailed down anymore. We can't figure it out. And ultimately and primarily, uh, sin is, is a relational thing. Right? Ultimately, it's a relational concept, this sin. It's, it's that we sin against God. We sin against God. There are lots of ways in which we sin against each other. Um, we do damage in our relationships, but every time we do that, ultimately we're sinning against God. You have the example of that in Psalm 51, where David is confessing his sins, 
He had uh, sinned against Uriah by sleeping with Uriah's wife and getting her pregnant, Bathsheba, and then killing Uriah. <clears throat> and then um, at the end of that whole uh, debacle, where he had um, hurt other people, he says this, against you, you only have I sinned. In his prayer to God, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So um, taking into consideration that our sin has its effects on our relationships and on other people in the world, ultimately, our sin is, is a relational affront to God. Whether we're spitting in his face or mocking him openly or just deliberately ignoring him. How can we ignore the God of glory, the God who has been so generous to us, the God who's made us in his image for relationships of love that last forever? Ignoring him might be the greatest personal affront of all. Right? Ignoring him might be the greatest slight. But that's ultimately what it is. It's a relational problem that we have with God. The main problem in the world is sin. And it's something that is internal to all of us. Right? Every single one of us sitting here has this problem I bet you were wishing that all of this didn't apply to you. You're sitting there thinking, wow, I hope the person next to me really hears all of this about sin. Um, <clears throat> it's a problem that's internal to all of us. It means me. It means you. Right? It doesn't, it's, the, the problem, the main problem in the world is not in that denomination over there. It's not in that church over there for their views on biblical morality or whatever they are. The main problem in the world is not that segment of the population, or that political party over there, or people who raise their children in that way or educate their children in that way. The problem is not them out there. The problem is in here, in our hearts, in our church even, in your heart. <coughs> Alexander Solzhenitsyn, I think I pronounced his name right, uh, had a book, The Gulag Archipelago, he says, if only it were all so simple, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being, and who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? We don't like to think about the fact that the main problem in the world is right here. Um, but God's word is clear on that, and uh, this is a doctrine that um, Calvinists fondly refer to as total depravity. <laughs> right, total depravity. Genesis 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. It's about as strong as it gets. Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Uh, Solomon tried, Ecclesiastes 7, I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I found something more bitter than death. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. He tried to understand it, 
and uh, it's the foolishness that is madness. It doesn't make any sense, but God made us upright, and we've turned away. We've turned away in our sin. Romans 3, no one is righteous. No, not one. Joe read that section, which is quoting from various psalms, starting with Psalm 14. No one is righteous. No, not one. Second Chronicles 6, there is no one who does not sin. 1 John 1, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say we have not sinned, we make him, God, a liar. And his word is not in us. We read it earlier in our confession of sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Jesus says, no one is good except God alone. From within, out of the heart of human beings, comes all kinds of sin. That's, that's the state that we're in. That's our default mode, our natural tendency. That's what's inside every single one of us. There is something wrong with you that you cannot fix, and it's the main problem with the whole world. And you think about that when you come to, you should think about that when you come to confess your sins. Uh, when we have that part of our service, uh, every worship we come, and that's one of the first things we do is we say, there's something wrong with us. It's the main problem with the whole world, and we can't fix it. We're at God's mercy. We're at his mercy if we're going to be restored to right relationship with him because what's wrong uh, with us, it's broken and we can't fix it. The Bible's very realistic about the persistence of sin, the pervasiveness of it, even in the Christian life. Right? Even if you are a Christian, it still applies to you. It is pervasive. It is persistent in your life. There is no Star Trek kind of utopianism in our near future where they've kind of nailed down the major aspects of, uh, of sin. Right? Everybody lives in peace. Um, that's not coming anytime soon by our own doing, right? Not by our own making. And in fact, uh, we, we just don't even understand how broken things are. In fact, the full gravity, the full consequences of sin were largely unknown even until, uh, until Jesus Christ came. And what you see in his death, in the death of the, the Son of God, coming to the world, the innocent one, the righteous one, the spotless one, who had no sin, he had, he had no guilt at all, coming and, and needing to die on our behalf in order to reconcile us to God, if that was necessary, then how terrible is our sin? How terrible is it that the Son of God had to die if we were going to be made right? There was no other way. He prayed to his Father, if there is any other way, please take this cup from me. Please make it so that I do not have to die under your wrath and experience separation from you in order to, to save these people. Please, if there's any other way, would you do that? And there was no other way. Right? That's what our sin uh, brings down on us and what it brought down on Christ. And um, there are several of us in the church, the officers and some of the, the men who are reading a book by Clifford Williams called Singleness of Heart. And it's, uh, the first half of it is pretty well devoted toward exploring what's wrong with us, exploring those, those uh, kind of nooks and crannies of our hearts um, that we're often unwilling to look, you know. It's the kind of thing it, it reveals about yourself, uh, things you didn't want to know about yourself, and it does so in a friendly way. You feel like he's on your side as he's helping you uh, to be surprised at what dwells inside of you. Uh, even even the, the, the evil motives that drive the, uh, the apparently good things that we do all the time, right? And, uh, and so, so some of us are doing this kind of self-exploration, self-assessment, this learning to know ourselves and overcome um, the self-deception. The whole point of that, the whole point 
of, of a deep self-awareness where God tells you what you're really like and you listen to him and you stop the denial about it, where God tells you and, and that you have a, a self-awareness that grows, it, it's not so that we can fix ourselves. It's not so that once you know what's wrong, you can address it. You can fix it, right? It's not that so much as it is that, uh, so that we can know our desperate need for God's grace because the more you actually know yourself, the more you, you know, I'm beyond fixing. I, I'm beyond taking care of this problem myself. Right? The proper goal of self-awareness is actually to look away from ourselves and just to find our true righteousness in Jesus Christ, to find our true peace in Jesus Christ. Because all this talk about sin, uh, it didn't apply to one person. Right? There's one person who lived, who still lives, who uh, this didn't apply to. Jesus is the one without sin. And as you read the Gospels, you see this in his life. You see that he was perfectly trusting. We have a problem with unbelief. He perfectly trusted his father, even when it led him to his death, cruel death on the cross, part of his father's plan for his life. He trusted him to the very end uh, and, and always enjoyed a, a close communion with his father that included his humility, his submission, right? He's God. He's fully God. He's equal, equally God, equally divine with the father, and yet he was humble, and he submitted himself to the father, and he said, not my will but yours be done, right? That's, uh, it's not like our pride. We are nowhere near equal with God but we demand to be. Right? We demand to be able to take our lives into our own hands and uh, we, we demand that we know what's best for ourselves and that we should get it. But Jesus was humble, he was devoted, he was grateful in every way, he was submissive, he kept the covenant, right? he kept God's law perfectly, obeyed all God's commandments. He was ultimately and always God-centered. He's the true worshiper. Right? He never gave his heart to idols, he never latched his affections onto something to some inappropriate degree or in some distorted way. He never did that. He always kept God, his Father, at the center of his life. He, he came to know uh, good and evil. He came to, to know true human wisdom through his obedience rather than through his rebellion. Because right? he obeyed God, he uh, grew in wisdom. And he was the true lover of God and lover of other people. He did not love himself. He actually, he looked out at a crowd like you, a crowd of people uh, like you, and he said, I will treat you as better than myself. I will esteem you more highly than I esteem myself. I will suffer on the cross and die for you. Right? I will be your servant. Right? Jesus did that for us. He's the true lover of God and others. He's the only one in his right mind. He's the only one who sees everything the way that it really is. He really does. He's in his right mind. He sees reality. He's the archetype for humanity as made in uh, God's image. He is in God's image. He is God's image, both as the divine image of God because he's the son of God, but also because he's the created human being living perfectly in God's image, reflecting God's image the way that we were meant to. Sin might be complicated, like a, a cancer spread throughout the human life that's just hard to even locate it and define it and call it out. Sin might be complicated, 
The gospel is more than sufficient as a cure for this problem because of the manifold graces and glories that are found in the Redeemer, in Jesus Christ. When we see Jesus, we see what kind of God we have because we see him in Jesus Christ. We see what kind of lengths he would go to to restore people like us, rebels, against God, to restore us to a relationship with him. We look at that and we know that he loves us. Maybe we think he shouldn't love us. You think about yourself, there's no reason why God would love me, but he does, because that's who he is, and that what, that's what he is like. That testifies to his character and to his motives, those things that we call into question on a regular basis. His character and his motives are good. His character and his motives are loving toward you, toward even you. And so sin is a relational concept primarily, salvation is a relational concept, primarily, because this relational God, the God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, came into the world to make the great exchange so that we could live uh, forever with him. The great exchange uh, is kind of code language, sorry, for 2 Corinthians 5, um, this concept that we see that for our sake, for our sake, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Here's Jesus, who knew no sin. He was innocent. He was pure. He was righteous. He was holy. And God made him to be sin. Didn't just count him as a sinner like us. Somehow there's something going on there where God, when, when on the cross, God looked at Jesus Christ, he saw sin. And he destroyed it. So that... When we're united to Christ by faith, when God looks at us and he sees Jesus, we are the righteousness of God. He sees righteousness. He looks at us, he sees righteousness because he looked at Jesus and he saw our sin. Right? That's what kind of God he is. He's the kind of God who, who makes that great exchange so that we can be related to him rightly. Jesus' life for us, his substitutionary atonement, his sacrifice for us to secure our forgiveness on the cross, our justification, our being declared right in God's sight, the atonement, making right what was, what was wrong in our relationship with God. That's what kind of God Jesus is and uh, that we see in Christ. And, um, and not only does he forgive us and kind of uh, start us off on a new, uh, newly reconciled path of relationship with God, but he, he's at work in our lives constantly renewing his own image in us. Sin is multifaceted beyond knowing. Salvation is, uh, is multifaceted and, and beyond comprehension for all of its glories, for all of its wonders, the graces that you experience on a daily basis where Jesus Christ, by his Holy Spirit, who lives in you, is uh, renewing you in his image so that when you consider the gospel, when you consider who God is, when you uh, commune with God, when you pray, when you think about Jesus, you can believe, you can trust, you can start to overthrow that distrust, that active unbelief that was in your life. You can overthrow it. It's replaced by real trust in your heart for God. Your heart is made new, and you are made able to trust that God is out for good in your life so you can do what he says. If you can trust him, you can obey him. We can open our eyes because of the gospel. We can open our eyes to his gracious provision, his generous provision everywhere in our lives of everything that we need, especially for eternal life. 
for eternal joy, for eternal peace with him. We can see in Christ the true God who is worthy of all worship, who wins our hearts away from idols. Every aspect of sin, every facet that we've talked about, he wins you away from it because of who he is, because of who he shows himself to be in Jesus Christ. In his grace, we're enabled to take an honest look at ourselves, to cultivate true self-awareness that doesn't result in despair. A lot of times if you're just looking at yourself and you see what's going on inside of there, you're just going to be paralyzed. Right? You're going to say, I can't get my motives right. Therefore, how can I go and act if my motives aren't right? Um, but when you look at Jesus Christ, you're enabled to, to take an honest look at yourselves without despair. He knows you better than you know yourself. Right? And he still accepts you. He knows what's going on inside of you is still broken and he still accepts you and he still calls you to serve him. Right? He still calls you to live on his behalf and still calls you to fulfill his commandments. Right? Um, as we're united to him by his spirit, we're given a new heart. In fact, we're given Jesus' own heart as our heart. Right? Vicariously, his heart belongs to us. We are given a new spiritual heart which draws us out of our self-love. Our, our old hearts, all they could generate was this self-love, right? Couldn't escape the gravity of self-love, living for ourselves, living to advance ourselves. Um, with this new heart that we have from Jesus by his spirit, the Bible says we need, uh, we are able to, to actually love even like Christ loved. We're, we're able to imitate Jesus himself in his love. And as we're made able to love again, we get our eyes off of ourselves and our pride um, just kind of disappears without a big going away party. Right? It just dissipates into real humility. We're, we're, we just don't think about ourselves. We think about other people right? because Jesus' new heart is in us. And that's the way uh, it's supposed to be. Right? All of this being reversed by the gospel, Jesus Christ himself coming and winning us to himself and, uh, and reordering our lives around his love and making us in his image again. That's the way it's supposed to be. That's the restoration of proper order, the, the created purpose for all reality. Right? And, um, and that's happening to increasing degrees in our hearts right now. And someday, finally and forever, we will be free from the plague of sin that infects every part of our lives. One day when Jesus comes back, we'll be free of it all. Um, and all of that is only available by his grace. It's only available in the new humanity that's found in Jesus Christ, which is given to you as a free gift. So you need to accept that. Right? Open yourself up to his love, and it'll transform you. Uh, let me close with a quote from Jude. Building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, accepting the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, there's a lot in your word uh, that overwhelms us with uh, a, a right understanding of who we are. It's, we, we can't handle it apart from your grace, so we pray that your grace would be more real to us than our sin. We pray that even though um, your word reveals and exposes us to be sinners and rebels in your sight, that your word would all the more give us comfort that you have known us and loved us and forgiven us and accepted us and you're, uh, you've begun a good work in us that you will complete 
And we look forward to the day of its completion when we become uh, fully like Christ and we're fully freed from this problem of sin, the main problem in the whole world that resides in each of our hearts. We look forward to that day and we ask that you would come quickly soon, Christ, and um, that, uh, that you would come and overthrow all the sin in our lives and in the whole world by your grace, that you would destroy the sin in our own hearts by your Holy Spirit, even now, and make us more into your likeness. We pray this uh, for the sake of your kingdom going forth in this world so that, so that others would be able to know, um, to know what's really wrong with them and what's wrong with the world, and that they would know the cure that's found only in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.